So at any given moment, we're bombarded by around 11 million different sort of insights or inputs into our brains. This is Alastair Scott. We can only really handle 40 of them at one time. He's a business psychologist and inclusion specialist. And so we use heuristics to manage that data and to manage those inputs. Now, of course, they can be really, really helpful. You know, when we walk into a room, we can see perhaps a blonde person or, or, or a black man and we can put them in those boxes. That's nice, you know. But those boxes create bias. And it comes from a very organic, natural place because as human beings, we're trying to make our lives easier. Unconscious bias is the focus of this episode, the first in a two-part diversity series. And recruitment is the starting point, according to Ksenia Sheldukova, who's head of research and thought leadership at the CIPD. Our unconscious bias can create a certain environment in the organisation that we begin to perceive as normal. So if people look around and they only see a particular type of person around them, they begin to think that this is the kind of person that is successful in this organisation and therefore continue to conform with that type of norm, furthering the lack of diversity in organisations. And just recruiting that image. Exactly. This is why the interest in unconscious bias is very strongly linked to recruitment, because this is the main source of new types of uh, people in our organisations. And if we fail to um, recruit for diverse candidates, this is how diversity issues in organisations perpetuate. So how does unconscious bias actually work? I put down as two different things. You're either in the one-up group or you're in the one-down group. Okay. The one-up group, those individuals who perhaps are dominant or in positions of power, and the one-down groups are those individuals who are the subject to any discrimination off the back of those individuals on the one-up group. Right. So people in the one-down group are people like um, people who are women, uh, uh, various sexual orientations, race that is not white. Now, those are the individuals that a lot of the time are subject to our biases. Now, it doesn't just stop there because actually there are other more interesting nuances in our biases that go beyond just these characteristics. Okay. So there are things like white pumps or shiny shoes, right? Okay. You, you look at me quite confused. And I, and <laughs> no, I think I'm getting this. There's stuff you don't like. <laughs> stuff you don't like. The, the thing about this is, where does that come from? Now, regardless of whether it's about shiny shoes or any other differentiator, unconscious bias can work both positively and negatively. We can decide not to give someone an opportunity because we ascribe certain characteristics to them uh, that they don't necessarily have. But that also means we can favour someone unfairly because we think they have positive characteristics, again, that they don't necessarily hold. And it's not only the obvious protected characteristics like race, gender, sexual orientation that we need to be aware of here. People may discriminate against someone just because they think in different ways or they think at different pace. We recently published a guide on how to deal with neurodiversity in, in workplaces. So this is, for example, people who have um, Asperger's and similar. This is not traditionally what we've seen as a protected characteristic in terms of diversity. And so the tests and training to those um, to deal with um, those types of biases may not be readily available, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything about it. Well, should we turn this on our head then and look yeah. for solutions? So. Yeah. Starting at the beginning of this process, your ad, your shout out for people to to join your organisation, there's pitfalls right there, aren't there, with the Attraction. language? Oh, absolutely. Gendered yeah. language, stuff around, you know, asking for competitive and determined people tends to bring you mail candidates, mm-hmm. lots of absolutely. stuff around that. Absolutely. It's really funny, actually. I was looking at a website last week and it was for a tech company and I was doing a bit of an, uh, an audit on their attraction. It's One, it's full of language that are, it's incomprehensible. 
And if you look at the kind of roles that they're apply that they are advertising right now, many of them are not in that sort of tech data space right many of them they're, they're recruiting into their people teams so, so they don't need to be technical don't in that need language. to be technical that language their technical software skills which they're looking for so talent managers lnd professionals so looking for a chief people officer at the moment too certainly it's alienating so that even that assumption that you're going to understand what i guess an ssios is i have no idea what it is it's ridiculous then you go into the imagery on the website so it's a soft thing so full of white men, okay. white middle-aged men. So if you're someone who's either um, an ethnic minority or you're a woman, this is a, a um, very ambitious startup and they've missed the mark already. And when you said all this to this client, were they surprised? I've not said yet. You haven't said it yet? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sharpening the claws right now. So you sort out the language in your job ad. Next, you need to think hard about where you advertise because that choice can invite bias into the process too. Certain age groups may be more likely to use particular channels, especially social media. I think it's less of a problem now than compared to when we did the research a few years ago. Uh, but still, um, being aware of what type of candidate is most likely to come across your job advert is useful. OK, the ad goes out, applicants apply with their CVs, but not so fast. CVs are a very unreliable route to diversity. What you don't know about me is my background is in occupational psychology, so my bread and butter is in the science of people at work. And it's been long understood within that community that things like CVs and references are the least valid predictors of performance in the recruitment process because they're plagued biases, not just from the characteristics that you see in sort of identifiable characteristics, but also the applicant's own manipulation of their experience as well, and sort of how they position themselves, perhaps they've elevated their roles. So the embroidering well. aspects. The embroidering. So personally, if I were going to be quite blunt about it, I don't think CVs should be used in the recruitment process, period. But people need some data, don't they, about the candidates? You can get data about candidates, but you can be a bit more smart about it. So you can be using scientific data on in your recruitment process. So you, so again, going back to psychology, you can start using things like measuring individual differences that are beyond CV. So you can start looking at motivation, um, personality, your value set. On the other hand, Ksenia argues there is good evidence that blind CVs do have merit. I mean, we should probably explain for people who don't know what a yeah, blind CV yeah. is. So a blind CV is basically that, well, if for one of better phrase, you kind of omit the CV process altogether or you take away any identifying sort of characteristics from the CV. So no names? So no, no names, no addresses, no date of birth. If you have one, no pictures, no nothing. We found that anonymizing CVs is an effective intervention for increasing diversity in organisations and um, reducing bias in recruitment. So that's one of the things we recommend that uh, practitioners do consider. Anonymised CVs on their own are not going to solve the problem. Uh, but what you might consider is using CVs or anonymised CVs as a gateway. A gateway to what exactly? Now you you have to realise you won't solve all problems at once. And so there is a bigger work to be done by learning and development practitioners, but also more broadly by, by people leaders um, in terms of how they foster the inclusive climate, inclusive culture in their organisations. And unconscious bias is just part of it. Um, all types of people, practices and policies send a message to employees uh, on whether they would feel they will be included or not in that organisation. And so I would suggest that um, 
if that's not even a bigger task for LMD <laughs> practitioners, that they consider their strategies and approaches as a whole, um, as well as focusing on unconscious bias training as a specific intervention. John Dawson is HRD at Mandarin Oriental. He told me how they devised a very creative version of blind CVs for a big hotel recruitment drive. I was opening a hotel and um, we had to recruit 250 people. And what we actually did is, is the first recruitment event, we actually hired a um, a art gallery in Fitzrovia in London. It's sort of a creative area and the brand was very creative. And we actually hired this art gallery and we told all the line managers, what we're going to do is do a recruitment event and all you need to do is be here at this time and this date and we'll bring the people and, and we'll go from there. And just mingle. And just mingle. Well... The, the managers was actually expecting us to, to come with CVs to hand out. With Some of the managers then, when we had no CVs, said, well, how are we going to know about these people? And we said, well, what actually we want you to do is anyone that has a name badge as a guest and has come to find out more about this brand we're creating, anyone that doesn't have a name badge obviously works for, for addition hotels and we want you to mingle. And um, first hand went up from uh, the front office manager, said, well, how do I know where they want to work and what experience they've got? I said, well, that's the whole point. Awesome. All we want you to do is write down their name and get into some really engaging conversations. What some of the managers didn't know is the majority of the people and CVs that you know, had first come through the door have got no hospitality experience whatsoever. And what actually happened at that event um, after you know, all the, the invitees are gone that the manager was just so passionate. Wow, I spoke to Sarah, I spoke to John. They were fantastic and I can't wait to get the CV tomorrow morning. So when we did the wrap up and gave them the CV, it was sort of a, wow, they've never worked in hotels or hospitality before. And it was, well, if we'd have given you that CV first, would you have considered them? Probably not. That was one of the most successful talent events I've ever did. There was around 150 people we invited to that event and the higher ratio was 78%. And then that brings me to that thought that, you know, has been raised in the interviews we've done with this podcast with people saying you need to standardise interview questions because if you don't, and you, know, and you need to do scorecard marking because if you don't, then that unconscious bias creeps right in, even you know, in the best intended things. You just, you find someone you like, that likability thing creeps in and before you know it, you think, yeah, 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 that, that's the girl for the job. What do you think? The, the model that we, we created from, from that talent event was very, very much that the first conversation was those natural conversations where you get that gut feeling, I really want this. But then when you, you then look at how we want to make up that team, you need different characteristics. And that's the second part of the interview process. So it wasn't just a case of sure. talent event <laughs> and they, you know, they're coming and no, got I the job. That. But you were much more standardized. Yeah, you so, so when they more. actually came, you know, came in, we developed a competency framework around standardization. And again, there was two different interviews. The line manager then interviewed with, with the HR professional. And then there was a final stage of the interview process which was the general manager or hotel manager so the, the time to fill did take considerably longer but the results in the end were, were outstanding. It's natural to gravitate towards people you gel with but there's good data to support the theory that employers hire people they like best on a personal level so natural chemistry is a red flag but how do you bias proof your interview process? So telephone interviews so I like to call telephone interviews the voice of the recruitment world. You laughed. So the show the voice, you don't see the person. So you don't see any body language, you don't see any um, things that they're wearing. So of course you can't be biased. Of course you can. People's tone, their pitch, and particularly in the UK, their accent. 
okay? And so again, back to that cultural programming, some accents, we just don't like that much, or some accents we really like. So there was, I forget where it was from, but there's statistics that suggest that the majority of people in the UK find, I hate to say, scousers, they're partly an accent, aggressive, unintelligent and untrustworthy. And Geordies are the good guys. Uh, and they go to good guys. Or people from Inverness, apparently, oh, as really? well. Yes, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm from Inverness. I can probably say oh, that. so you're all good then. <laughs> um, but what happens is, you know, again, it's implicit. People don't realise, why do I have this disregard like, for people from Liverpool? But that will put that person, after that telephone interview, firmly in the no pile. But of course, face-to-face interviews are an ideal stage for our biases to play out on. Crazy hair. Albert Einstein would go in the notebook, no bucket. Okay. Long hair in a man. Richard Branson would go in the notebook, no bucket. Um, blonde women. Marissa Meyer would go in the no bucket. Because people might think, blonde, bimbo. Ditsy. Yeah. So these fantastic people I've just mentioned, because of people's prejudices, they don't even know they might have amazing people wouldn't be disregarded in the recruitment process. So, avoid looking for likability and, says Ksenia, ask everyone the same questions. So having a very structured set of questions that you ask candidates at further stages of recruitment so they all have a fair chance of performing well. So is that standardised questions? Yeah, that's it. So you have an interview guide uh, that makes sure you ask candidates uh, the same questions across and also that you use the interview process to gather data and make decisions afterwards rather than making decisions in the process. There's a a, a great fondness, I think, in all of us for the organic interview, isn't there? The the wide-ranging, let's see how it plays out, interview Full of pitfalls, presumably. Totally, absolutely. I'm I'm split between this actually. So the suggestion is you, you have you standardise questions, you mark them with scorecards. So yeah, ideally you eradicate bias, but you you're objective in that. Yeah. It's an objective process. Mm-hmm. Now there's pitfalls in each solution because you do want to get a sense of the individual and the personality. Now we are, we know a couple of the limitations of objective recruitment and inter- uh, interviews rather is um, the candidates going out into the marketplace and posting them on things like Glassdoor because you're asking the same question to all candidates. Yeah. But you, but on the flip side of that, um, you can do a very accurate comparison of two different candidates yes. and get the responses. So for me, it's a bit like, always a bit like when you're doing a scientific experiment, you, you, put, you put that Glassdoor thing in your limitations box. Right. right? So what you can do is formulate different questions that measure the same phenomena. So you can reposition the question differently. So you can get a bank of 10 questions that you know will measure that skill that you're measuring. Example? How you have defined teamwork for your organisation is one thing. So what does it look like in, I don't know, British Airways versus Diageo? It could be two different, very different things, depending on their culture and how they want to work. Um, So that's one thing. And then it's about what's a good example and a bad example within that culture and that framework. And then and that helps you then build your scoring criteria and how you defined it. Once you've built that and you understood what it looks like for your organisation, then you can start building questions off the back of it. I wanted to ask you about gut feeling, because this is the thing that people always talk about. And um, I'm intrigued by this because in the course of doing these, these podcasts, you know, obviously we've done podcasts about neuroscience. Neuroscience practitioners have said to us, you need to listen to your gut because your gut is telling you stuff that you know you're not perceiving consciously and it's good data to lean on. And of course, 
then we'll encounter people who are talking about unconscious bias and they say, absolutely not. You should not be listening to your gut because it's just telling you all the stuff that you've always thought. Where do you go with gut? Um, I would suggest that people need to educate their gut a bit more. <laughs> so <laughs> unconscious bias can solve um, the issues of diversity in organisations and more so the unconscious bias awareness and also unconscious bias training doesn't um, doesn't tell you which decision to make. It still won't tell you which candidate to hire or which candidate would be best for the job. That's still the manager's decision. I guess the point of being aware of the different types of people and how this come across is um, to understand that you might be prone to bias and that to take that into account when you make the decision. So perhaps your intuition or your gut is one factor and you may be naturally attracted to a particular candidate or um, a particular decision in, in, in the process. But... Um, this this training is about stopping and asking yourself, why am I thinking that? Why is my gut telling me to do this? Alistair has a great example of how gut feelings are not to be trusted. There was a um, hiring manager that I worked with a number of years ago. And we were just sat down and I... Was, this was when I was doing psychometric feedback and giving recommendations. And I thought I'd, we'd find an amazing candidate for, for that. Like on paper, the psychometric profile was hitting all the sweet spots and we'd done a lot of work to identify what those sweet spots were. Amazing. Didn't get the job. I'm like, this is really, really weird. So I went and had a, con- a debrief with, with the hiring manager. I was like, what happened? Like, they were great. She goes, oh, oh, I know, yes, I know. Like, oh, but there was just something in my gut. And she said this, something in my gut. I just don't know what it was. I'm like, well, can you elaborate? Like, we can't just use that <laughs> as, a, as a defense. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, well, she went, Alistair. And she said, you know what it was? Like, I'm yeah, really keen to know. She said, you know, um, white pumps. Like, <laughs> oh! <laughs> Black mom. Black. <laughs> <laughs> um, white pumps. And I was like, what? And she said, uh, nobody wears white pumps after August by the holiday weekend. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't get the memo on that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's not easy to identify, let alone eradicate, our own biases. So how to guard against them? Well, Alistair has a simple fix. He thinks two heads are better than one. Whether you're an SME or a big organisation, just have someone there as your conscience and a sounding board afterwards. And there's a clear and important role for HR here. We expect HR professionals to act as experts on organisational behaviour and cultures. And so without having to make decisions for the organisation in terms of the um, type of culture it wants to strive to or the types of people it wants to recruit, it's leading those conversations at a very strategic level. What do we expect of our people? How do people fit into our organisational ecosystem? How do we want us to function? What are our people goals are in the next five to seven years? What are the external trends that are impacting our decisions about people? Because um, even if as an organisation you might take a particular stance on diversity and inclusion societally, we have certain expectations of businesses and how they act and how they include people in, in their workforces. So that's that's an, an interesting tension for HR to hold as well. So it's about having that strategic conversation, asking the question. I wouldn't put it is quite so grand as being the conscious of the organisation, but certainly being that educated facilitator of people conversations in the workplace. Educated facilitators, neatly put. Thanks to Ksenia Zildukova, Alastair Scott and John Dawson. Next month, in part two of our diversity series, we'll be chewing on a tough question. Why does it seem to be so much harder to discuss BAME in the workplace than gender? 
I'll be joined, amongst others, by a newcomer to the podcast, June Sarpong, MBE TV presenter turned diversity expert. Thanks for listening.